As diasporans, many traditions and customs of our ancestors have been lost or forgotten as a result of our dispossession from Armenia or simply through time. Today we are uncovering one of these hidden traditions, not well known, Harsneren. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And you're listening to High Tuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Carla Kakejan is a PhD candidate in communication sciences and disorders at the University of Utah, where she specializes in assessment and treatment approaches for bilingual children with speech and language impairments. She's an adjunct professor of psychology at Salt Lake Community College, where she teaches courses in lifespan, growth, and development. Carla received her MA in human development and psychology from UCLA in 2017 and her MS in speech language pathology from the University of Utah in 2019. Carla began the study of Harsnedin in 2015 when she was an undergraduate student at UC Irvine. Since then, Carla has documented the name Harsnedin in reference to the practice and has gathered first-hand accounts on its uses throughout different regions of Armenia. Over the past several years, Carla has given talks on Harsnedin at various universities including UCLA, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Harvard, and Oxford University. In 2019, Carla wrote and directed a documentary short film entitled Harsnedin, Language of the Armenian Bride which premiered at the Pomegranate Film Festival in Toronto, Canada. Hey, Carla, how are you? Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Really excited to have you here. Yes. Um, Haig and I have been so curious about this whole topic as soon as we heard about it. So um, we have lots of questions for you. Well, I was amazed the first time I heard about it. And I guarantee you, everyone listening now, you're going to be so interested because it's something that no one knows about. If you Google Harsnedin, you'll only find Carla's work essentially on this. So Harsnedin literally means bride's language, correct? Um, uh, could you briefly just define what Harsnedin is? Yeah, so you're right. Harsnedin does mean language of the bride in Armenian. Um, and Harsnedin is essentially a gesture-based uh, signing language um, used to communicate by women who had the ability to speak during times when speaking was not permitted for them. So it's a sign language created essentially by women for women to communicate during times when they were not allowed to speak. And it kind of just naturally happened, huh? There was no like, arm, you know, harsnet in the class. No, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't seem like it. No, yeah. uh, there's uh, no harsnet in class. And it seems like it was just um, developed out of necessity. Um, so I think uh, some people may have learned it from... Uh, seeing their moms or their own in-laws do it. Um, There might have been some instruction that happened, but really we don't know. Um, But yeah, so it, it, and it also varied based off of the environment. So it, it was also adapted that way. Well, so could you paint a picture to what the Armenian family kind of looked like? Because this is a little older of a custom, let's say, but what was the dynamic for people that just don't know anything about maybe our that our region and how the family dynamic existed? Right. So I think as, as it relates to Harstaden, um, when a, a girl got married, which often occurred at a very young age, she moved in with her in-laws. And um, it was that was very customary um, at the time. Um, and so a bride moves in with her in-laws and uh, it was often expected of the bride to perform hasnuchun, and what that means is doing different um, sort of bridal tasks. 
um, around the house. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it was almost like proving her worth. And so one of these things, uh, one of the things that was required of brides um, was to maintain silence. And that was a gesture of respect to the in-laws, to her husband, to really just those around her. She had to yield her speech as a sign of respect to those around her. That's that's crazy. Um, and so this existed in the Caucasus region or it's even, does it exist in other places? Uh, how far back does this go? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's really difficult to trace it and to say how far back it goes. But I mean, we know based off of my research that ex it exists in present day Armenia. And, um, if, and I've also read about this practice of silence keeping in Western Armenian literature dating back pre-genocide. And so, you know, it existed in that region as well. But I'm curious if it's yeah. just an Armenian thing or is it a Christian thing, a Muslim thing? Like, is it uh, or is it just regional? Other cultures also kind of have versions of this. Harsnerin and the Ch Chochoskan. Yeah, so I should clarify, uh, the, the practice of silence keeping was called which you know literally means the practice of not speaking. And so it was the, this practice of we see uh, in Armenian scholarly work, um, and we also see it you know, in the present based off of the areas that I did my research. Um, you know, it's very likely that it, some form of this exists among different cultures within the Caucasus. Um, it, it's interesting because I've, I've looked very briefly into it, but women's uh, specific or gender specific languages or forms of communication um, exist in other cultures as well. So just briefly, uh, something that I've read about is, is called Nushu, which was a a form of writing um, used by Chinese women. And so, you know, I haven't delved too much into mm -hmm. into those areas, but I think it's really interesting, this idea of like gender-specific languages. And I think when it comes to Hashtag, it is a safe bet to assume that, you know, it existed in, in that entire region. Um, but of course, I think all of that needs, uh, you know, further research. But... Yeah. What I think is really important to note is that Harsnerin is an Armenian word. And so while this practice, specifically the practice of Chukhoskanuchun, while it might exist across different cultural groups, maybe other countries, um, the word Harsnerin is specifically referring to this practice used by Armenian women. And Who coined the, the word Harsnerin? Who came up with that? Yeah, so we don't know. Um, I oh. think it's, uh, we don't know like the root of it, at least based off of my research. I had done some reading. I had found some, uh, you know, written work on this signing language used by Armenian women. And that's really all that I was finding in the research. And then I went to Armenia because I was interested in learning more about it. And it was in the cures that I was in the villages that I was doing my interviews in where some of the women were like, oh, you're talking about Harsneren, like this is Harsneren. Mm -hmm. And so when I would ask, uh, you know, about the origins, you know, I, I wouldn't get concrete answers because it was just something that was learned and it was passed down. So it wasn't like a very, I don't know, official 
thing in that sense. I don't really know like what the best word is to describe that. I know what that. you mean though. Yeah. yeah, just kind of passed through the villages. It's not really been studied or uh, made into a concrete form. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it was Harsneren. Like that's what we called it. Like that's what so they would funny. say. And I do think it was interesting until I went to Armenia, um, and I and I started interviewing women myself. Myself, based off of the research that I was reading, it just called it women's language, mm. which you know, at first, before going to Armenia, I thought this was just a language used by all women, but it really is a language used by married women. And so girls had the, I mean, they were given permission to speak or they spoke freely before they got married. And some women, after a period of time, were either implicitly or explicitly granted permission to speak. And so, I mean, some women just didn't speak for decades and then other women, you know, perhaps didn't speak for two to three years based off of like when her first son was born. It really just depended from family to family. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's no guarantee that you will get that permission as soon as your first child or son is born or... Yeah, there's no guarantee. And I think what's really interesting about the practice of and this idea of being granted permission to speak, which is such an innate ability, right? And um, it's this idea of you, you don't know if you're going to be granted that permission and you don't know how. So when I say implicitly versus explicitly, it varies across different households. And so implicitly, you know, I th it was like an unspoken rule perhaps in the house that when the bride had her first son or when her father-in-law died like it really was just this unspoken rule in the home and at that point on she was granted permission to speak but that was implicit um explicitly other women have told me that oh you know one day my father-in-law came and he gave me jewelry and i said oh what is this and he said well, now you have the permission to speak. And so in exchange for, you know, he gave a monetary gift of some kind and said, you know, so you, you now have like the ability, the right to speak. So and once once you are granted that ability, is that full reign to speak, you know, as much or as little or however you please? Yeah, so I've asked that and it's really interesting. And, and I think this goes back to Hike's question about just the Armenian village life, you know, when I would ask them like, oh, who would you speak to? And, and they would just say, you know, we weren't necessarily speaking to, you know, to so many people outside of our homes. Like perhaps most of the family lived together and perhaps they communicated with their neighbors. Um, everybody really was, if we're looking very, really back into it, you know, people were really invested or involved with agricultural work. So really everybody just fended for themselves. Um, so I think opportunities for vast communication were limited. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that even within the home, you didn't have the right to speak mm -hmm. when you were practicing Chukhoskanuchun. Do you have any theories as to why this happened as a cultural phenomena? Like why the patriarchy uh, did this to their women? Do you have any, I, what would be your opinion on that? Um, I mean. 
I have my own guesses. That's why. <laughs> what theory. are your guesses? It's a it's a way of control, obviously, you know. But um, I think one of the villagers I was talking to one time when I went with you that mm-hmm. one summer was he was saying something like they didn't want relationships to occur between the young women and other men in the family, so they wanted to like completely cut that relationship off the bat because of whatever reasons that is, you know. So, uh, but I. I feel like everyone you would talk to probably gave you a different reason. Yeah, and 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 that was true when we uh, when you came on one of my uh, fieldwork trips. Yeah. Uh, that was like a theory that was stated. Another theory is that, um, or not a theory, but something people have just said. But reoccurringly, uh, and it, it was just this idea of the man needs to be respected and this is the way that respect is given. And not just to the man. I think what's really interesting about Harstenen is that it's something, it's in relation to her husband, but also to her in-laws and that includes her mother-in-law. So what I find really interesting in anything I've read about Chukhoskanuchun or and, and any interviews I've done um, about this is that Oftentimes, the mother-in-law, who was once a silence, silenced bride herself, implemented that rule to the new bride. So it was this idea of, well, it happened to me and I had to... Uh, if I had to do it, paying you your to dues. Do it. Right. Yeah. It, it is like a way of paying your dues into, into this family, into this household. And so that's why... I think this work is really hard, at least in terms of drawing vast conclusions about it, about Harsneren, about Chukhoskanachon, is because um, every family, it really was, I mean, there's some uniformity. There is some signs that we've documented that are consistent. um, And then there are some that are unique to some family versus another one. And then the rule of silence was different in some households and others. So, you know, some brides, like I said, would say, you know, I was only silent until, you know, I got my my gift. And then other people said, well, like I was silenced for over 30 years um, until like one of my in-laws died. Mm. And so... When you say silent, mm-hmm. um, if all the men leave the room, you're still remaining silent? Like if, if, if it's just women in the room or let's say just women in the room, but not your mother-in-law, for example, mm-hmm. like just your side of the family, the women at that point, are you speaking freely unless a man walks in? You know that generally, I'm sure it was case by case too. Yeah. You know that that's just hasn't come up in the interviews. Like mm-hmm. no one has ever said, you know, I, you know, if me and another woman were in a room that wasn't the mother-in-law or her mother. So it. It really just depended. And so some women, for example, have told me, well, um, I could speak to my husband privately if it was just us two. Mm. But, you know, if our in-laws, if like my in-laws were around, I wouldn't be able to speak to them. So it, like you said, it's very case by case. Um, but, you know, one thing I think is really interesting is um, so in some cases, women, if there was a child around and, and, and the bride was still, you know, practicing or using, you know, communicating using Harsaren, she had, in some cases, had the right to whisper into the child's ear, and then the child would vocalize what she's saying. But again, Mm -hmm. that's very circumstantial. But I think that's just very interesting that, you know, 
a child vocalizing what she has to say is okay, but she doesn't have that right to, you know, vocalize what she she's trying to convey. Right. Mm-hmm. One thing that came to mind with, with that question was, um, would a child be able to often hear the sound of their mother's voice? Right. Cause for the, for the women that, um, you know, from your research that did stay quiet, you know, for decades or for some, their, most mm-hmm. of their lives, I mean, that would be wild to imagine, yeah, be mm-hmm. a child and not be like completely familiar with the sound of your mother's voice. Yeah, that, I think that's really interesting. It's scary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You say Maida ni lozu, right? Right, mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they say that, and it's like you're supposed to learn the language from your mother, but then you never get to speak with her. Uh, it's insane to us, but yeah, and uh, you know, the mother child relationships. They haven't come up too much in my my interviews, um, so I'm not exactly sure like what what that relationship looks like. You know, I can't say that you know children didn't hear their yeah, their mother's right. voice. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's it's a very valid valid question. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, true for sure. Well, so uh, you were talking uh, about the inception, like how you first mm-hmm. came about this. Can you tell us about that? the story of how you kind of came about this whole project in the first place? Yeah, I I think the story is really interesting. Um, It's a a very interesting turn of events, but really I was in college. I was at UCI, UC Irvine, and I was sitting in a linguistics class and uh, my professor was talking about Nicaraguan sign language. And I, that like, you know, posed a question in my head of, oh, what do, uh, you know, deaf folks um, or people who are hard of hearing, uh, what do um, they use in Armenia? So I was really interested in Armenian sign language for um, people who are hard of hearing or, or who communicate using sign language because, of course, they're not going to use um, American sign language in Armenia, right? And so I started uh, Googling like Armenian sign language and I came up, uh, I came upon this Wikipedia link that said Armenian sign language, you know, that is used by the deaf population uh, not to be confused with Armenian women's sign language Mm. and there was no link you know it was just a statement on wikipedia um like wait wait hold on yeah i was like women's sign language i was like excuse me (laughs) yeah i can't click on it come on man um yeah there was no um there was no data you know, from that link, but I'm like, this came from somewhere. And so I went to the library, spent a lot of time at the library, um, and a very determined librarian ended up helping me. And, you know, after some time, we came upon a book um, uh, that, you know, just anecdotally mentioned this sign language used by Armenian women, and they linked it to, or they cited it as, um, they cited it uh, as um, this Georgian author by the name of uh, D.P. Karbelashvili. And so they cited Karbelashvili and they cited his book. And um, then I was like, okay, we have to find this book. And then more work done at the library. We finally got, uh, finally got a hold of the book. But of course, it's in Russian, and then it sounds uh, like a like a murder mystery. Yeah. <laughs> like you're unlocking all these clues, and yeah. on the precipice of something that has not been touched. And then you have a book that you can't read, and you're like, I need a translator. Translate it, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating book, and it you know it was 
old and it had all these like things in it you know of that course, i was of trying course it was to, dusty and you're like yeah yeah wiping like the dust blowing, off to yeah. uncover this like probably from new, the soviet union or whatever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah it was so interesting i mean i found like i had when i searched it there was like uh you know one bookstore there was like a library in the in the states that had it and then like this one random bookstore in russia i'm like do i know anybody that can get this to me <laughs> I'm like how do I get this book? Yeah. But anyway, so the library workings did their magic, uh, got a hold of the book, and it's of course like months of work. And then like okay, we have to get this translated. Um, the book is a little over a hundred pages, um, and then there's thirty or so, uh, like give or take, uh, of pages of illustrations of the signs oh, wow. um, that are in it. And so one librarian at UCI. Uh, transferred me to a Russian studies librarian at UCI and he was so helpful and also so interested in this topic where he volunteered to translate the book so he volunteered to translate the whole book and uh and um we we translated it into English um and then I wrote a foreword to it and then we made it available on uh through the UC library system. And so we so made the cool. book available. Yeah. And so when we uh, translated into English, um, when we translated into English in it, it said four villages that Karbalashvili, this, um, you know, Georgian scholar in the early 1930s, uh, it's, it said four villages that he conducted his research in. So, um, and one of the villages was the village of Baganis, which I had done youth corps in yeah. uh, wow. a couple years before that. And so, um, you know, we had spent some time there with youth corps and I had the mayor of the village uh, as a friend on Facebook. And so <laughs> um, I, I think it was that summer. So all of this is like going on during like one academic year. And so that summer, uh, 2000. 16 um i went to armenia and I, I messaged the mayor you know on facebook and i said you know you know and so it was uh in baranis uh when i went and uh, took two friends with me uh it was in baranis and with the first woman that i ended up interviewing you know i was like explaining this thing that i had read about and she goes oh and so that's uh then it began then it began and i said oh okay so i interviewed her for a while and it was you know very informal and i said oh uh Shmega, do you know anybody else who um uh you know spoke Harsnerin. and then they directed me towards the neighbor you know and so it was all done by foot really you know going from home to home and interviewing families and it wasn't you know sometimes uh Women were interviewed alone, just really depends. And then, but other times, I mean, you're walking into people's homes. You can't, you know, you have to, you know, respect their home and uh, talk to everybody who is there. So sometimes it was just really depending on the home. It either was like an individual interview and sometimes, you know, grandkids were around and, and you know, husbands, in-laws were around. But at this point, did you know your what project you're kind of putting out there? You were just winging it like, hey, I'm just going to interview as much as I can right now. Yeah, you know, when I went, I didn't expect to find anything. I really, and there was no agenda to it. Mm -hmm. um, I really just had seen this thing that I, you know, online that I had just gotten invested in as like a side project. Um, and then I, I 
love going outside of the city in Armenia anyway. So I love visiting different cures and stuff. So I thought, you know, I have a, I have like a contact here and it's a good opportunity to, you know, get out of the city. If I find something great, if not, that's okay too. And so there was no agenda to it. There was no camera, there was nothing. And when women started demonstrating signs like me and two of my friends i'm like oh who has an iphone like you know (laughs) and so i recorded this uh and of course you know we asked for consent and Mm -hmm. uh you know if somebody didn't want to be filmed or anything um we we respected that but yeah there was no project uh, there was no um project in mind um and so i just did as many as i could during that weekend and given my time in armenia well then I met you in the summer 2018 and I got to go with you on mm-hmm. one of these trips. But at that point, you already done the documentary because this eventually turned into a little bit of a film project for you, like a short documentary. So does that mean the summer beforehand you had gone back with a plan to like, hey, I'm going to go film this with a better camera and produce something, correct? Yeah. Um, well, the documentary uh, didn't happen until like the actual document didn't happen until last year, like 2019. Oh. But we had filmed the footage uh, some of the footage um, in Baranis and, and those neighboring villages. Let's see, the initial fieldwork was done in 2016. And I think 20, I think it was 2018. I think it was the summer that I met you in Armenia. I think just, I, I had taken two trips. Mm-hmm. And one of them was to Tavush, where I did more official filming there because I knew that it existed there, yeah. you know? And then... Uh, when we went on that trip, um, I had heard, uh, like anecdotally or just from different participants that the sign language also exists in different regions of Armenia. And so someone told me that, uh, you know, you might be able to interview people in Gavar. Yeah, it was close to Mar 20 mm-hmm. by 7 over there. Yeah. But I, could, I have to say, Carla, when you told me about this, I was so interested. I was telling everybody at, at Birthright and whoever I would meet, you know, there's this practice that we have no idea mm-hmm. about, and it was so interesting. Um, so it's a, it's really mind-blowing stuff, and uh, if it wasn't for this, I definitely would have never heard about it. I mean, maybe it's just because we're in the diaspora, and it you know definitely died out. Did it seem like it was dying out, though, as a practice over there? You know, it seemed like it at first when I started doing interviews. Um, but I, I, the more interviews I did, the younger participants came my way. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I I think the youngest person I've interviewed is 19, but she didn't speak Harstad, and she just practiced Chokhoskanotun. And I think that's a really important thing to note, is not everybody... Uh, practice Chukhoskanuchun spoke Harsneren. And so, again, and that really just varied from household to household. And um, and the girl I met who was 19, I mean, that was in the 2018 trip. So I thought it was like fading away, but, you know, in some areas it, it very much exists. Um, but... Um, Maybe in different forms or not. In yeah. different forms, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the signs are different too. Like the if I when I have interviewed younger participants, you know, um, you know, some people have said, well, yeah, I, I didn't really use signs for cow and you know different cattle, um, 
because we just didn't have that, you know? And then, like, younger participants have set signs for, you know, the police or things like that. And so um, some unit, like I said, some uniformity did exist, but it, it, I think it varies on on the home, the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, household. Yeah, the household, yeah. What would some of the repercussions look like if someone did speak up? Like, I imagine for someone who, let's say, just got married, it takes a second to get used to to realize, oh, wait, I'm not allowed to chime in here and there or have a full-on conversation with uh, certain people yeah um i I, that's a really good question and you know uh, i think the best way to answer this is is through an example i was interviewing um a woman perhaps in her 50s um who was telling me about how strict the you know chocos control was enforced and she expressed being abused when, um, you know, she broke her silence and she told me, you know, that was so hard. I mean, it was such a hard adjustment. And when she broke her silence there, you know, she, she was abused. Mm -hmm. And so she said that when, um, when she was pregnant, she had a miscarriage and she was so afraid to tell her husband that she, um came up with signs and and told him using gestures that she was having a miscarriage because she was so afraid to um you know to speak and so these are some of the repercussions that we see and it's it's undeniable um and it's really devastating Mm -hmm. yeah um that's that's hard to hear but that's important to know Mm -hmm. um speaking of that in what ways, Haig, you touched on this a little bit, but in what ways do you think the use of this practice reflects the broader perception of um, women and sort of the different gender roles throughout this time? Um, in, in the documentary, um, we saw, for example, that um, a lot of the brides and wives would even sit separate to eat and, um, you know, wearing the head and mouth coverings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. What do you think that says about the broader overall um, role of women? throughout our history yeah you know i that's that's such a great question it's very heavy um and we do see you know brides having to cover up because there was an idea of shame associated with the visibility of a woman's mouth consistently across all my participants who wore um a a, you know a a mouth covering they said that or you know it was shameful and and i think that we do see aspects of this amote complex in armenian society until this day so i think that is, is such a deeply rooted thing and and that the idea of amote is really geared towards women you know then and now um for the most part um so we do see that and even yeah in the in the documentary you hear women talking about how they had to eat separately and a part of that was because at least in 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 those households and i feel like i can only speak to you know the specific interviewees if it came you know if there was some share for her she ate and then she ate privately because it goes back to this idea of the mouth is amot and so these are just some things that my participants have said and so um women were servants i'm getting so angry listening to this <laughs> and i'm curious if you've even given it a thought to what 
the grander societal implications this would have this has where you know the women in the villages just don't speak you know how could that affect the development of a society yeah i've given i've given that thought for sure um and i think the main um answer i have to that is um uh, and i say this in the documentary but how much of Armenian history and cultural heritage is missing when half the population was forcibly mute mm-hmm. for significant portions of their lives? These are women who never got to tell their side of the story or this, their side of any story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is just such a broad, imp- you know, one of the biggest impacts um, among so many of, of Harstaren. And seeing that, seeing um, how that affects future generations, right? Like, that doesn't mean that, for one, if you are granted the ability to speak, I would imagine you don't fully take advantage of that. You don't suddenly flip off that switch. Mm-hmm. But also for the future generations, you know. Um, and and um, I'm curious about your knowledge on this is, even for a, a, a daughter, let's say, whose mother practiced it, I, I would imagine some of like some remnants of that practice remain, regardless of whether it's um, fully enforced mm-hmm. for the following generations. You know, some of the uh, women that, and even some men that I've interviewed, because again, I, I interview people in a household, and so a lot of people have said, "Oh well, I didn't speak it, but my mother spoke it," and they can speak to the implications of that, um, how it was like to, um, you know, observe that, um, what implications they thought it had. Um, so I do think that, and, and again, some of my, some of the people who have informed me about Harstenen, they perhaps weren't the one who primarily spoke Harstenen. You know, they knew someone in their immediate family who spoke it, and people say, you know, my dad enforced this onto my mother and things like that and so yeah you you do see it in in the following generation as well and how painful that was you know and and their thoughts on it i i can't imagine growing up uh with that practice it's so foreign to me that's why it's mind-blowing yeah I'm, i'm curious carla as well if a practice like this would uh drive apart the women of a family or bring them closer together like you mentioned the idea of um, the mother-in-law who had paid their dues i wonder if that unites you know those who earn their talking rights versus those who weren't allowed to yet speak yeah I, that's such an interesting question and um i'm not sure i i totally have the answer to that because like i said i don't know how broad communication was mm-hmm. with outside members of the family mm-hmm. um so we we see it within the home and again the, i gave that one example of the bride and the mother-in-law but that wasn't the case for every family and so this is what actually what's most frustrating to me about hashnaden is that we have so many questions about <laughs> it right um and it's so hard to give a concrete answer because it's so variable and I yeah. felt like they were reluctant to speak sometimes or, oh, it's, you know, it was just how it was, you yeah. know, 
I mean, sometimes they're just traumatized and they don't want to go back to those like memories to even talk about in the first place. So it's hard to get those answers sometimes. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, it's such a difficult topic uh, when you're interviewing people about it. Like I said, you know, the the story of the woman having a miscarriage, like that's not something easy to disclose, especially to a stranger who is interviewing you. You know, it's hard for them to talk about. So they don't want to relive those memories. And so it's not my I, I don't push it yeah. and you just have to let them speak comfortably and and tell you what what they want to tell you yeah. um but um so do you yeah. plan on even like uh, adding more to the, the data sample for example do you think you'll you know continue to work on this project in the future Yes, I would love to. And I, I would love to, you know, visit as many uh, villages and regions as I can. And I think what I also want to do is this is not or cannot be a one person job. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I hope that I've been able to set the foundation that other people can look up Hotsnet and look up some of these areas, maybe go and do their own field work and see with any research you want to see if uh, findings are consistent across different you know, interviews and participants. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, here we are spreading the message so that <laughs> you know, who knows there'll be the next generation of people who could study this and research it as well. That'd be awesome. The more interviews, the better, right? And the, the better we can understand Harsad and, and its lasting impact. Um, and I do think that I knew that when, when I, or I felt when I found it, if I didn't at least try to look for it, look for it i didn't know if someone was gonna make the same searches or you know put put in that much energy that you know i was just so invested in it and so my objective was to just self-educate and then set the foundation for something else you know and over the last couple years hodgson has been living data to me um i have you know, done so many interviews in in different areas. And when I started this, I was 20, 21 years old. um, And the way that I looked at some of the issues surrounding Harsanen was a little different than how I look at things now. You know, I, I mean, you grow and you learn and you understand things a little bit more. So if I look at the way that I understand, you know, if I wrote a paper back in 2016 or 17, you know, analyzing some of this, it looks a little different than how I would interpret it now. And that's the idea of it being living data is Mm -hmm. that, I mean, you can go deeper into it and understand it. And so the more that I can unpack to the best of my knowledge, you know, and abilities, I think that will just set such a, you know, at least set a foundation that other people could, you know, use as a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting in that way. I feel very attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, this topic found its way to you so organically. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't blame you for for feeling attached. And I think (laughs) the fact that there are so many um, questions that are still um, unanswered makes this research so exciting. Yeah. And the fact that there is no foundation, you know, usually when you're building research on a topic, the first thing you go is, to Google and figure out the information that's out there. But with this topic, like you we can't go- quite do that. Now we Google Carla, <laughs> mm-hmm. so... Yeah, no exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I love, you know, I, I wrote about it and I presented about it um, at different conferences. And I made the documentary, which is, at this point, it's about 17 minutes long. 
Um, because I, I, and there's a short clip online that you can watch on YouTube. That's three minutes. And I am just very keen on, on the idea of making research and making data and, and these stories accessible to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a short documentary or a short video clip, um, that you can post on, on YouTube or on Facebook or, you know, show at a community center, um, be it the documentary, that makes the research accessible. And I, that's really important to me. Like, I don't want to hold this and, and, you know, and not share it. I mm. want to spread, um, you know, as much information as I can about it. Yeah. One last question though, Carla, before we go. Yes. Um, like I've been saying though, it's been very weird to, it was so interesting, but at the same time, makes sense because in our household our mothers are the loudest people in the house right um, <laughs> which is like a, what we're used to and what we love but how should we look at this now in the modern context you know when we're looking at you know we, a lot of us go to Armenia and we kind of see a heavy patriarchy a heavy misogyny in the first place but um how should you know a lot of times too when we do youth corps we go to the villages and we experience this firsthand it's off you know it's weird but then there's a part of us telling us you know this is just how it is here this is the culture of the you know in the villages let's say how should we interpret it you know going forward knowing this information i think with any sort of if, if you're going in an environment that is not your own you can't approach it with any sort of judgment and so we can make so when I do these interviews, you know, I am just an active listener. Sometimes I ask questions and, uh, you know, I get responses, but it's, um, and I think that that's, that's really important to keep in mind, especially if, you know, you're going from the U.S. to Armenia, for example. Um, and one way that I think there's no doubt Harsneren or, and this practice of Chokhoskanchon is an awful part of Armenian history. And so it means that half our population was forcibly mute. It means that they were stripped away from an innate ability. Um, and, and that is very difficult to absorb. And I think that th there is no sugarcoating that in that sense. But like I said, I think something that I have come to analyze or observe about Harsneren is that um, it was om it almost to me seems like an expression of agency because during times when women were not allowed to speak, these women, even if we don't know how far back it goes, these women literally created their own sign language to communicate. They found a solution to this problem, you know, um, this difficult circumstance that they were in. So when you, it depends on, on how you look at it, mm -hmm. I also think. So it is really difficult and the premise of Harsneren is is really difficult to absorb you know I, I I can tell from your faces right now that you know it's <laughs> it, it, it's like difficult concerned. content to, to you know it's it, it's hard to accept that like this is your history right mm -hmm. like like we so at least based off of my interviews um it it was a cultural thing. And so uh, the men or the in-laws or the mother-in-law, you know, it was within family that it, th that this, this practice was enforced. Um, and so it is really hard to, you know, to accept it 
but it is it is the reality and we we have to learn about it and we have to acknowledge this thing that you know existed and might still exist um in parts of armenia today but i also think it is important to look at it uh, of what it was uh in those circumstances because when depending on uh you know the women that you communicate with you know sometimes women just say well you know that was the time um things were like that and then other people like express more rage um and anger towards it um but yeah and i and at that time though at, at least based off of my analysis of it they found the solution uh you know during this time that it gave them some yeah. agency mm -hmm. um i remember carla while you were in your undergrad we had a conversation at like an in and out near <laughs> uci and um i remember hearing you so passionately speak about linguistics at the time and your study of sign language and it's just amazing to hear you know from there to now um this whole whole world that you're that you're opening up for yourself and for all of us mm -hmm, and um i'm very happy that you happen to read Armenian women's sign language <laughs> one day and that it's brought you to all this research so thank you so much for sharing it with us we cannot wait to hear um what more is uncovered about Harsnerin thank you so thank much Carla thank you <laughs> It's important for us to understand and become aware about an outdated custom like Chekhoskanutun, which can add context to some of the characteristics of our community today. Learning about Harsneren provides us a glimpse into the historical Armenian family tradition, which reminds us that not all aspects of our culture and customs are to be celebrated and sustained as society progresses and culture evolves. As a pioneer, Carla is one of the few who have begun to study this subject and has helped establish a foundation for further research, as there's a lot more to be uncovered about who we are, our identity, and our past. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Haituk Talks. The official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And we're just a couple of Armenians. Talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.